I'm convinced that politics proves there's a heaven. <laughs> this week, with John McCain's passing and the, all the hoopla that surrounded his um, his funeral and and all the services, and is um, reminded me how political politicians and political elections, in particular, reveal how our culture makes its decisions. Um, basically, it's aim for image and emotion rather than substance and truth. I remember several elections ago, one presidential candidate who actually won, so you can do the figuring on who this was, referred to the word hope a number of times in his pre-elect me uh, talks. And he said uh, that hope is, quote, God's greatest gift to us, the bedrock of this nation, a belief in things not seen, a belief that there are better days ahead. And when I heard that, I actually wrote it down because I thought it was a perfect example of the hope that this world offers. It uses God's name, it uses God's word, but it uses it in a way to sort of baptize wishful thinking. To put a spiritual skin over secular thought. Now it's easy for us to shoot at politicians because that's what they're there for, right? <laughs> Until we realize we do the same thing. If we're not careful, we can set our hopes on better days ahead. That the bedrock of our lives can be electing the ideal candidate or choosing something in this life that's going to solve our problems. And that our hope is largely for the weekend or for Disneyland or for things that this world can hand us on a plate. And you know, the disciples were very much the same. And when, when, as we went through the Gospel of Mark, we saw time and time again that their passion, even though it was for the kingdom of God, was for the kingdom of God now. When Jesus began to teach that he was going to die and rise again, and then even there, even in the upper room when he told them, I'm going away, and there will be this indeterminate period of time. Just before his ascension, they asked him, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the time. But your job is to be my witnesses. So Christ revealed that there is this indeterminate time between his ascension and his descension, or his second coming or for us, the, the initial phase of the second coming, the rapture, in which we don't know how long that is. And our temptation is the same as it was for the apostles, that in this time between, before the kingdom actually comes, we want the kingdom now. And if we can elect it, we'll try. If we can buy it, we'll try. If we can somehow get it out of a meal or out of something this world offers, we will try because we desperately need a, a salve 
a, an opiate, uh, a, a um, comfort for our lives that are dripping with pain. I like what George Palmer said shortly before he died. He said, I'm homesick for heaven. It's the hope of dying that has kept me alive this long. <laughs> and you know, in a way, that's really true. Because his hope, his hope, was for heaven. It wasn't for what we find in this life. God's hope finds its bedrock not in anything but his promises. For the Lord, there is a basis of reality in his hope, not wishful thinking. Well, let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in your handout, as you're turning with your third arm, pull out the, on the second page of the handout, you'll see a chart. And look at that chart real quick. I won't be referring to this a lot through the series, but this is a good opportunity to give you a quick overview of this great book that challenges us to have our hope where our hope belongs. And today's passage will really hammer that home. But you can see, as this chart is laid out, it's, uh, it basically sections off the book, and it shows you various sections of it and different emphasis and that are throughout the book. This first column says saints' salvation, and you can see it goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10. That's how that lays out. The next column, the saints' situations and suffering, goes from chapter 2, verse 11, and then there's a couple of subdivisions there. But you can see the details of it. You've got the saints' salvation, and if you go down that, that column, that the perspective is a fixed past, the faith shows the basis for it. The obedience is the, the reason for it. And the sanctification is positional. So just moving across, just look at those, those last four rows. The perspective is, goes from a fixed past to a fleeting present to a forever future. Our faith initially shows the basis for it. Then in the center primary section is the testing of it. And then finally the outcome of it. Our obedience, the reason for it, in the center, the results of it, and finally the reward for it. And then at the bottom, sanctification is positional, that is how we are seen by God, progressive, that is how we are growing more to, more to be like Christ, and then finally perfect as we grow to be as, as we are now declared to be, and that is righteous as Jesus. And a, and a simple summary of the book is that Peter writes to encourage the saints to have excellent behavior in suffering circumstances because, first of all, because of their salvation, second, the testimony that their behavior is to others, and third, because of their future glory with the Christ whose sufferings they now share. So feel free to cut this out or to keep it folded and keep it in First Peter. And as we go through the book, you'll see how all these sections flow one right into the next with a very logical progression. Peter's done this. He's laid it out well. You'd, you'd almost think it was inspired. <laughs> because, of course, it was. Well, last week we saw, as we began chapter 1 in the first 12 verses, that we can laugh in spite of the tears. And by laughing, I don't mean that we, we don't look at it rea in reality, 
but it's sort of like when you're at a funeral. When you're at a funeral, you are deeply grieving because of the loss through death. But at the same time, if the person was a Christian, there's great hope. And you have the reality of those two very much felt emotions. Deep grief, deep joy at the same time. One not canceling out the other, but both going in tandem. And a lot of ways, that is what life is like. That is, we struggle through life, we can at the exact same time have a joy because our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in the next election. Our hope is not in the weekend. Our hope is not in anything that this world offers us. It's ultimately in the coming of Christ, as we'll see in this passage. And at the same time, we're desperately struggling because of the suffering that God in his great sovereignty allows us to go through. Well, let's begin in verse 13 with a very practical application. Very practical application. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Boy, in that one verse, in essential, essentially we've got the whole sermon. We've got the whole sermon. When we talk about what it is you're hoping in, there's nothing in this life that it should be your ultimate hope. But, but Peter says to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But he begins when he says, gird your minds for action. Literally, the text reads, gird, gird up the loins of your mind, which is sort of a mixed metaphor if you think about it. Your loins is your midsection. And to gird up the loins, of course, in that day, people wore long flowing clothes. And to when you were to do work or something, you, or if you were to run or you would do something that would require a lot of physical activity, you would gird up your loins. That is, you'd take the back of your garment and you'd pull it up and tuck it in your belt to where now your legs are free and you have a little more mobility. In our day, we might say you roll up your sleeves. It's the idea that you get out of the way what is going to hinder you from being effective. Gird your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. That is, get out of the way what is going to be, what is going to get in the way of you being effective. Gird your minds for action. Uh, and Peter applies this metaphor of girding to the minds. How do you do that? How do you gird your mind? Well, he tells us with the word, therefore. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action. So that sends us back to what we looked at last week. And it indicates that we gird our minds or prepare our minds with the truth of verses 1 through 12. That is, remembering in our minds, thinking about the fact that our trials that we're going through are temporary. Because, because he says that. He also says that they are necessary to prove our faith. And also because of the eternal glory of our, of our magnificent salvation. You strengthen your mind in trials by remembering those, those things. That your trials are temporary, they are necessary, and ultimately you are headed for a glory that is magnificent. 
You strengthen your mind when you dwell on those things. Prepare your minds for action. And for the same reason, he says, keep sober in spirit. I think the New International Version says, be self-controlled. It's the idea that you don't allow you don't allow anything else to control you. When you are sober, you are not controlled by any substance but your own mind. Uh, to be self-controlled has the same idea. All of our thoughts and affections are not to be inebriated with anything that the world offers. Now, they sound like commands, and I believe in many translations, they're essentially translated as commands. Gird your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. But actually, if you get real persnickety in the, in the grammar, uh, it's, they're participles, and, and they support a verb or a command that actually comes after that. So literally, it's girding your minds for action. Keeping sober in spirit, here comes the main command or the main verb. Fix your hope. How do you fix your hope? He tells us, by preparing your mind, by keeping sober in spirit, you fix your hope completely. The word completely is the word literally for perfectly. It means that there is no exception in what you're hoping for. It's not, I'm hoping for the coming of Christ and anything else this world offers. It's exclusively the coming of Christ. When you wake up, when I wake up every day, our passion is today could be the day. Today could be the day that he comes. It's your hope. It's your driving passion. And the fact that we know that we could stand before him at any moment, it gives us such motivation to live a life that is for him. You know, when we say hope, it's not the political hope that I mentioned initially. It's not wishful thinking. It's not saying, well, I, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or in our case, I hope it does. It's not, you know, I hope that we have a safe trip. It is a hope that is, that it is as certain. It's sort of like the hope that you have that here in about 30 minutes, I'll be done. <laughs> it's going to happen. 12 o'clock is going to come. That's a different hope. It's not a hope that's a wish. It's a hope in something that is coming. And there's nothing you can do to stop the clock. It's a biblical hope. Back in 1970, uh, I don't remember it that well. I was just a boy. But some of you might remember this pretty well. Back in 1970 with the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission, the astronauts needed to make a very critical course correction. You remember they had an air tank blow up, and you saw the movie, Apollo 13, Tom Hanks. But if they failed on this course correction, they might never get back to Earth. And so in order to conserve power, what they had to do was shut down all the on, the the onboard computer. And the, on, the problem is the onboard computer steered the craft. 
And so for them to do this, what was it, a 39-second burn of the main engines to, for the course correction, but they didn't have the computer that steered the, the craft. So they were going to have to drive it manually. And Jim Lovell, the astronaut in charge, determined that if they could keep a fixed point in space and steer toward that fixed point, that it would, their course correction would be fine. And it turns out that that fixed point was their destination, Earth. So as long as Earth was in the window as they were doing this 39-second burn, they would be headed in the right direction. I thought, what a great picture. Headed toward keeping your destination in the window. That's exactly what Peter is saying that we need to do. To keep your hope, your goal, your destination, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace to be brought to you, it is being brought to you. You don't even have to go get it. Jesus is bringing it to you. I like the Young's, Young's literal translation of this verse. It says, Wherefore, having girded up the loins of your mind, being sober, hope perfectly upon the grace that is being brought to you at, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, This is your goal. This is your constant thinking. This is your complete hope. It's your focal point in life. There's not a lot that we can be sure of today. We live in a culture of broken promises, broken relationships, shallow friendships, and flawed leaders. And that's just a church. And after a number of stabbing disappointments, we can come to the place where we expect little else in life. We can get, we can get cynical if we're, if we're not careful. We can focus so much on the here and now, especially on, on all the pain that life has, has given us, that we can sort of get sucked into this black hole that just, that just envelops us emotionally. And in moments like this, Peter's words, or theology, offers us an anchor of the soul. God has given us theology to give us something solid to grab onto in life. To give us something that, that is immovable to put our arms around. That helps us quit asking the world and people to do what only God can do. God gives us hope. God gives us purpose, a certain future with a very specific outcome. Ravi Zacharias said something wonderful on his radio program. He said this, quote, The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard reasoned that he had learned to define life backwards and live it forwards. By that he meant that the destiny or the purpose that he sought became the dictator of the direction taken. He started from the final state of life from which to determine the present path chosen. That is the legitimate way to begin any journey. In other words, we think, okay, where do I want to go? Let's say San Antonio. You don't head north on I-35. If you know your destination, then you know the direction. If our destination is heaven, 
then the direction we walk is that direction. We don't walk the way of the world. We walk toward the direction we're going. Peter tells us we're to live in light of the future in contrast to the past. Look at verse 14. He writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. I got a kick out of reading this story. Um, years ago, Portugal had its most extensive blackout in decades. And it turns out that what happened was a stork laid its nest or, or built its nest in the power lines and it got so big that it got all tangled in the power lines and there was uh, power out in Lisbon and most of southern Portugal was without electricity for about an hour because of a stork. And the spokesman said, the follow-up investigation will seek to discover how a defect like this could spread over such a wide area. You know, you read that and you think, okay, well, that's, that's kind of an anomaly. But I read that and thought, that is what sin is like in our lives. That if you let that stork start building, all of a sudden it can have ramifications that are so far more reaching than you ever imagined it would be. Paul, uh, Paul, Peter tells us that a little sin tolerated in your life goes a whole lot further than you think it would. He says, don't be continually conformed. Literally, that's what he says in verse 14. Do not be conformed. But the, the tense of it is continually be conformed. And the only other time this, um, this, this is used is Paul. Paul uses this in Romans 12 too, the verse that, that we're probably much more familiar with, with regard to allowing our minds to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Peter is saying the same thing here. But he uses a, a, a metaphor of children as obedient children, as little children, do not be conformed. Do not allow your mind to be molded to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. It's a very powerful, poignant way of saying, you know, before you came to Christ, you didn't know any better. But now you do. And so we want to live in light of that. It's not like you're a little kid that doesn't know any better. But now you are obedient children. So don't allow yourself to be conformed to the way it used to be in your life. Always keep in mind that the sinful nature is doing its very best to guide your thinking. Your sinful nature, which you still have, in spite of the fact that Jesus has died for your sins, you are declared righteous in his sight. You're not made righteous yet. That'll happen either at the rapture or at your death. You're declared righteous. You're not yet made righteous. Your sanctification is still progressing. It's not yet perfect. So you still have that sin nature right alongside the nature, the, the old man and new man, or the old nature and the new nature, I should say. And so your sinful nature is doing its very best to guide your thinking. It's doing its very best to guide your tongue, your hands, your feet, and your passions. And Peter uses the word here, lusts. <clears throat> Typically when we think of lusts, we, we, we limit that in the sexual realm. 
But the word can go far beyond that. It means a longing for something that is outside the will of God, basically a lack of waiting. And this is what the world is. The world is guided by its passions and lusts. And we live in the world, and we often succumb to that same temptation, don't we? That we make decisions based on the need of what we, we think we need at the moment, when in reality it could simply be our lusts. But then he gives a great contrast, verse 15. He says, but don't be like the world, don't be conformed to the world, but, and, and in the Greek that's a huge contrast, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. The word for be holy is actually passive. It's not simply be, be holy as a command, but it's something that you allow to be done to you. So while we're not allowing the world to conform us, so do not be conformed, that's passive. He, he's also saying, allow yourself to be made holy. You're not surrendering to the world to conform you. You're surrendering to God to conform you into holiness. I once heard it said that we could summarize most sermons we've heard in two words. Anybody know what those two words are? Be good. It's true if you think about it. Most sermons, the application is basically be good. But why? <laughs> Have you ever wanted to raise your hand and say, tell us why? <laughs> Peter tells us why. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why should we live a life that's godly? Why should we live a life that's holy? Because you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he's quoting from Leviticus, which gives a context of the redemption from Egypt. Why should, why should we be holy? Because God, the holy God, has saved you. He has saved you when you in and of yourself could not save yourself. And the word here for I is emphatic. It's the character of the God who is holy. Jesus said, remember what we read in Mark, no one is good except God alone. God is holy. He is, he is absolutely separate from what he has created, which is what the word holy means. It means separate. Moses was told to take off his shoes on the ground where God was because, because God was on that ground, all of a sudden now that ground was holy. In the tabernacle, you had sections of it. You had the courtyard, you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place, all in relation to God's presence. Wherever God is, that is holy. Now, you know this, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do you know where God is? He's in you. And he's in me. Because of the Spirit of God who resides in us. And if you want a great picture of how Christ feels when we tolerate, our, when we allow ourselves to be conformed, as Peter says in verse 14, to the world, think about, think about the Lord Jesus driving out the, the money changers in the temple. He doesn't want any of that in his temple. And we are the temple of God. 
and his holiness through his spirit dwells in us. Why should we be good? Here's the first principle. Because God's goodness is the standard. Why should we live a holy life? Because God's goodness is the standard. He doesn't say be all-knowing because I'm all-knowing or be omnipresent for I'm omnipresent, but be holy. Have character. Have a moral quality about yourself because that's what I have. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am humble. God went first. He set the example. Peter gives us another reason that we should be good, starting in verse 17. Earlier, he he called the believers to be obedient. He called them obedient children, and now he sort of plays off that idea in verse 17. He says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time during the time of your stay on the earth. During the time of your stay on earth. Uh, That kind of harkens back to verse 1, I guess it is. It is, verse 1, to those who reside as aliens. It's a reminder to us that our stay on earth is temporary. Our trials are temporary because our stay on earth is temporary. We're aliens. And he says, during this temporary stay, conduct yourselves in fear. If you address God as Father, and he plays off of that, and the idea here of fear is not terror, but respect. How many of us were told to respect our Father? Everybody was. And it was expected, because it's proper. How much more proper is it if we address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, that we should live our lives in respect of God? during the time of our alien sojourning here on the planet. And he says if, you could translate that since because both are true. It's assumed to be true. Since you address God as Father, we live as obedient children. So Peter's told us to be good because God is good. He's given us the standard, God's goodness. And now he gives us the motivation. It's not just because God is good and we're to be like God, but there's also another reason. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter uses the word you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. It's not the first time Peter's used this. About 30 years prior to Peter writing this, those same words came from Peter's mouth when he was in the temple. Remember, we've made a, 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 a Sunday school song out of it. Silver and gold have I none, but... Yeah, right, it's been a while since Sunday school. <laughs> Lisa remembers it. But Peter uses those same words, and in the Greek, they're the same words. And it's the idea, just as he told the lame man there in the temple, look, silver or gold is not what's going to do the job here. But in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. 
It's the same idea when he says you were not redeemed with silver, with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the word that he uses here for redeemed, you may have in your margin the word ransomed. And that is also a legitimate translation. And because back in verse 16, he quotes from Leviticus of the context of the Exodus, and he mentions the, ple- the precious blood of a lamb unblemished, and the feudal way of life from your forefathers, all this context, he's basically saying, he's, re- he's saying to the Jews, think back, you were saved, not simply because of the blood of the Passover lamb, but ultimately because of the blood of the precious blood of a lamb unblemished, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You have been ransomed. You have been bought. And it's been paid in full. The good news is your sins are completely forgiven when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You were bought with something far, far more valuable than the very, very best this world has to offer. You were ransomed from your futile way of life. What a, what a phrase. Futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You know, you may have had great parents. Um, you didn't have perfect parents. And the crazy thing is, neither do our kids. There's an element of the way that you were raised that was futile. And there's an element of the way that, w- that we raise our kids that is futile. It's worldly. It's pointless. And we inherited it, and we pass it on in our, in our sinful nature. Peter, I think, is referring specifically to the exodus, the futile way of life, the, the, uh, the slavery, of, and even broader than that of being under the law. But for us, in our purposes, we can also take that principle and say, any kind of futile way of life inherited from your parents. You weren't redeemed with perishable things from that life. You were redeemed with something precious with the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, if you've already believed in Jesus Christ, then God's incredible grace in dying on the cross is your second motivation. Why should we be good? Why should we be good? Why should we live a holy life? Peter gives us two reasons. First, we said because God's goodness is the standard. And second, we just read because God's grace is the motivation. We don't live a life of godliness to try to earn God's love. We didn't earn Christ's death on the cross. It was given freely. We simply accepted the gift. And so when we live a holy life before God, it's not because we're trying to earn something. It's because we've received the gift and we're simply saying thank you. It's a response to Him. God's Grace is the motivation. In the world, our motivation to live good, to have good deeds is to be recognized, to feel obligated, you know, you've done something for me, now I've got to do something for you that's good. Or we feel guilty, I haven't done what's good, so now I need to. Or it's just flat out selfishness. But our motivation for every good deed that's done should be one that is gratitude for the amazing saving grace of Jesus Christ. 
And notice he says, it's it's grace toward you. Look at verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice what Peter writes there in that last phrase, your faith and hope are in God. So that, the purpose, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory with a purpose so that your faith and hope are in God. God raised him so that your faith would be in God and so that your hope would be in God. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our faith. We get that. But Jesus' resurrection is also the basis of our hope. And hope takes us right back to the very beginning. Because remember in verse 13 where he he tells us, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, The resurrection of Jesus and his coming again for us are all considered. So why should you live a life that's holy? Why should I live a life that's holy? Two reasons. Because God is good. He's the standard. And because God is gracious. He's the motivation. Listen to this verse from Isaiah. And then I'll ask you to just bow with me for a closing prayer. Isaiah writes this. uh, It's chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and lofty place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the heart of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. I'll read that last line again. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Great truth. Let's pray. Father, it's not lightly that we call you Father. As Peter has written, It's only because of your son, Jesus, that we're able to call you Father. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for ransoming us from a life enslaved to sin and without hope. And bringing us from the kingdom of this world with its shallow, thin promises of hope into the great and glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ with hope that is certain, not just wishful thinking, baptized in religious words, but it is certain. Help us as we walk through each day, as we look forward to that certain future, to live holy because you are holy and to live holy because you have been gracious to us. And it is our way of saying thank you, of living our life for the one who gave his life for us, even Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.
Amen.